Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, um, on average, there are about 15 million college students each year enrolled between the years of 2010 and 2020, which is the most recent data on that. There's about 15 million college students. Roughly 80% of those college students will change the area of their major study at least once. That's 12 million students across America who thought, this is what I wanted to do only to then realize they've never been more wrong, that they don't want to do that thing. Around a third of those 12 million students uh, will change their major two, maybe three, or more times. I don't know how your college experience was or if you went to college or any of that, but I'm sure all of you could identify with this here in just a moment. But my college experience was very much this way. I changed my major study maybe four, five, six times because uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had absolutely no idea. Uh, I was on campus at uh, Southeastern Oklahoma State University for six years. And in those six years, I think I counted, I changed it five times. Uh, between uh, all, all those years I was there. Now, why, why is this stereotype so well-founded? St statistically, it's like a joke that we all say, like, oh, uh, you start a study as a freshman, you're not going to finish at that same degree, right? I I'm sure many of us that went to college have a similar story. Why does this stereotype hold up? Well, I think it's also the same thing that all of you, whether or not you went to college or not, could understand this idea of searching, not knowing what you want out of life. And so, out of this confusion, out of this not knowing, every college student, for the most part, is trying to find meaning and purpose to their life. They're trying to find direction and vision and an understanding of, this is what I need to be doing. I'm sure all of you could identify with this notion that purpose, finding a purpose, is, in the world's eyes, a worthy endeavor to put yourself to. On our campus uh, at uh, Southeastern, we were part of a college ministry. Wes and I were together. And uh, we would go around and engage fellow students with the gospel. And we'd try and engage them uh, with the hope that we have in Christ. And one thing we would ask them is, what is the purpose of your time here at college? What is, your, what is the purpose? Why are you at college? What do you think the purpose of this is? Most of them would reply with answers like, get an education, uh, get a great job, make a ton of money, provide, provide for a future family, meet that spouse that would give them that family. Uh, and then, uh, or maybe a few of them would answer to get a better understanding of worldviews and philosophies that are contrary to my own. 
So what is the right answer? What should we go through this life searching for? What, what is the purpose of stepping onto the university of life and experiencing a bunch of different things for a very short amount of time, right? Our lives are not that long. When we step into it, step into this environment, this life that God has given us to live, what then is the purpose of it all? Why, why should we go through searching for this, this purpose, this meaning of life? This is the question that the preacher is seeking to answer today in our text. And do you know what his answer is? Surprise, surprise, it's vanity. All of it. The, the purpose of it all, it's vanity. It's only vanity of striving after the, the wind. Today we'll see um, that the preacher uh, will show us two means of searching this morning that leads us to, to vanity, and this will serve as our outline. First, he searches by means of wisdom. Second, by means of morality. So these are your two main points if you are taking notes. Vanity in wisdom, vanity in morality. So first, vanity and wisdom. In verse 12, we see the preacher once again introduces himself to us as one who has been king uh, of Israel in Jerusalem. He wants to give a clear indication of the means at which his, the, the means at his disposal, at which he's sought to answer the life's questions. Answer, what do I want to do with my life? Answer the, what is my meaning in life? What is my purpose of, of life? He has all of these means at his disposal as king of Israel in Jerusalem. If we were going to concede that the author of this text is indeed Solomon, which I, I believe it is, me and Wes have agreed that it is, and that's how we're going to present it moving forward in this, this uh, sermon series, which, uh, so if, if this is Solomon, there can be no doubt to all of the knowledge and the information and the understanding and the philosophy that was at his fingertips. All of this was at his disposal. Solomon led Israel to an unprecedented time of wealth, prosperity, clout, after the death of his father David, he took over this empire and God gave him the wisdom to lead it and make it prosperous and wealthy and, and massive. This was an empire at his disposal. He had the entire world at his fingertips. All of the greatest thinkers, philosophers, economists, scientists, cultural revolutionaries, priests, prophets, and resources that one could ever have were right at the fingertips of this king, of the preacher. Nothing was out of his reach. And with all of this before him, what did he put his heart to? Wisdom. So we see in verse 13, and continuing on, that he said that he applied his heart to wisdom. He's going to say this twice in our sermon text today, that he applied his heart. This is the equivalent of him saying, I am devoting myself entirely to this thing. I'm devoting myself entirely to wisdom. I have... I've understood what I needed to do, and I'm putting myself to this strong devotion, wisdom. I've applied my heart to know wisdom. And he says that he searches, he, uh, he applied his heart to seek and to search wisdom. And so this, this term, seek and search, this is used in the Hebrew to show you that uh, that. <clears throat> nothing, absolutely nothing, is left for him to discover. That he absolutely, with all of those means at his disposal, Solomon, the preacher, left no stone unturned in searching for all that is done under heaven and devoting that by wisdom to this life that we now live. He has seen everything that is done and nothing on earth has escaped his investigation. In verse 14, he says, Everything that is done under the, the sun, I've seen it. 
And he even goes on to say in verse 16 of our text that, that his wisdom surpasses all who came before him. Then David, his father, all of the patriarchs that came before him in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, he said that his wisdom surpasses them all. And his experiences were great. He sat with all of the, the greatest minds in this, in this part of the world at this time. He sat with socialists. He met with the Marxists, right? He was captivated by the capitalist conservative. He fought with fascists. He laughed with libertarians and he ate with anarchists. This is the people that Solomon had around him to learn from and to apply his wisdom to, to try and find the meaning of this life. He studied every major on campus. He's been to every building, heard every lecture from, from every professor, and, and had every student experience and internship that this, life, life, that this life could give him. Nothing was left unknown to him by the means of which he had at his fingertips. And he did this wisdom, and this wisdom was, was true wisdom. This is the wisdom that was given to him by God. We see in 1 Kings 3, that Solomon, it says Solomon loved the Lord, that he loved making offerings on great high places before the Lord as a means to worship him. He, he gave his life, his rule, his reign to the God of his father, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Yahweh, him and him alone, the one true God. He loved the Lord. He was a good king as a result of this. And as a gift for his love and devotion, the Lord offered to answer the prayer of Solomon's heart. Ask me for anything, I'll give it to you. What do you seek? Solomon answered with this. He said, I want an understanding mind to govern the people of God and to discern good from evil. He asked for wisdom. And in 1 Kings 3.10, it says that it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this, and he gave him all that he asked for. God had given him this wisdom, this discerning mind to lead the people of God and to search out all in this life so that you and I might benefit from it so that he would be a good king that loves the Lord his God. This is the means by which he seeks and search. This is the means by which he left no stone unturned in his investigation of the meaning of his life. Not by the fickle sort of foolishness of, of a college freshman, but by the wondrous wisdom of the Lord. His heart was sincere, and God had given him a discerning mind, and he applied this knowledge to seek out the meaning of life. And what was his conclusion? What was his, his, his end result? What was his final thesis? What was his, his group project that ended the year? This is an unhappy business that God has given man to be busy with. All is vanity, striving after the wind. You see it there again in verses 13 and 14. As you and I toil through this life apart from God, we will inevitably come to the same conclusion. We can chase all sorts of world, worldly philosophies. We can chase all sorts of worldviews. And apart from God and apart from the gospel, we will come to the same conclusion. All of this is vanity. It's just about me. It's about self. It's pointless. It's worthless. It's fleeting, right? It's like a breath that, you, that we're trying to catch and it's just gone. We will all come to this, this conclusion. Sooner or later, we will all be let down and disappointed by everything this life is trying to indoctrinate us into. What is the one thing that every human since the dawn of time has tried to find, regardless of their worldview, regardless of who they're following, regardless of who they're worshiping, what are they trying to find? They're trying to find happiness, right? They're trying to find meaning and purpose that, and joy that they have so this life doesn't seem so terrible. Ultimately, the more we search, the more we try and find out about this life apart from God and his gospel, ultimately, 
the more unhappy we will become. That's what Solomon says at the, at the end of this passage. The more, uh, for, for in much wisdom comes much vexation. He who increases in, in knowledge increases in sorrow. The more we know about this life apart from God and his goodness, the more we will be let down and disappointed. Leonard Wolf, a political theorist, uh, economist, author, civil servant, uh, he and his wife, Virginia Woolf, were two of the most influential authors of the 20th century. Um, they pioneered movements as, uh, as we know them today as the first and second wave uh, feminist movement. They, they were a part of sort of leading this. Their, their ideology was very much at the center of what the culture was trying to do in the mid to late uh, 1900s. He was a smart man, very smart, and he, he and his wife had great influence over cultural thought. In the year, uh, in, and, and yet in, in 1968, one year before his death, he lived a very long life, and one year before his death, this is what he had to say at an interview. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as if I'd played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a, a, a rather enigmatic confession that I have to you. In a long life, ground through, I have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. I have committed myself, my life's work, and honestly, it's practically nothing. I've done all of this, and it's completely pointless, utterly useless work. And this is one of the most influential people of the 20th century. All is vanity, a striving after the, the wind. See, he, his, his idea for searching was broken. He didn't have an understanding that the, the preacher is trying to give us now, that apart from this good God, this creator, this loving God who's, who's revealed all to us that we might glorify and enjoy him with, apart from this God, it's bankrupt, it's empty. All of our searching, even if it's genuine, even if it's sincere, is pointless and will lead us to hopelessness apart from God. This is the understanding that all of the preacher's experiences has led him to. Just as yours will, just as mine will, if we go through this life in our own power, trying to search and to seek the meaning of life. He summarizes this with a proverb. Verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. When I was in college, one one of, my, one of my big changes towards the, the, the end, one of the last majors that I uh, studied was that of finance. Um, I was convinced I wanted to be like an internal auditor or, or something of that sort. So I wanted to devote myself to that endeavor. In order to do this, uh, I took several accounting classes. Uh, and honestly, I loved them. They were a lot of fun. They made sense to me. Um, in the beginning, they were kind of difficult. And I remember one assignment uh, specifically, uh, we were given the task of balancing um, the spreadsheet and the accounts of this multi-million dollar, I think very real, uh, oil and gas company. Um, it was a multi-million dollar company that we had to balance the accounts for. Um, and we, I vividly remember being at the coffee shop there in Durant, um, the old one, not the new ones everyone goes to now, but uh, we, we, uh, we were at this coffee shop, me and a friend, and I was trying to figure this out. I was racking my brain and being completely overwhelmed at my incapability to balance the spreadsheet. I just didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't a novice to like Excel and, and various forms of this work, but I, everything I tried, it kept coming up empty. I tried for hours to no avail. Philip Ryken says it this way about this proverb. 
He says, it's like, this proverb is like, uh, life is like this, uh, uh, this proverb and sort of kind of like this analogy. He says, life is like an account that refuses to balance. We can tell that there is a deficit, but we can't figure out exactly what it is. And even when we make an adjustment to get everything up, or everything to add up correctly, deep down we know that somehow we are fudging the numbers. I realized eventually in, in that assignment that no matter what I did, I was faced with a choice. I could either get the answer wrong, or I could fudge the numbers or cook the books, people, things that people have gone to jail for in the past. As it turns out, I didn't have the right formula plugged in. If you've ever worked with Excel and worked with a spreadsheet, formulas are everything, right? If you, if you got your formula wrong, everything's gonna be off, right? And you can't hope to, to fix it unless the formula is right. And this is like what this proverb is trying to tell us. God has made things unknown to us. And unless we have the right uh, perspective and the right formula to figuring these things out that he's made crooked, we will never be able to make this straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. The account will never be reconciled apart from the correct formula. The spreadsheet ain't gonna make sense unless you got the right formula to put in. Apart from God, this unhappy and hopeless life will be exactly that until you understand who we're meant to be glorifying and how we're meant to be glorifying him. If we are trying to do this in our own power, by our own understanding, the formula's broken. It'll never balance. No matter what we do, we cannot straighten the crooked ways of this world. We will never know those things that God alone knows. No amount of cultural activism will lead you to a savior. No amount of government reform will make up for the lack of righteousness to be found here. All of these mysteries that are, you're racking your brain trying to figure out about the world, how can this be so broken? It'll never make sense unless you have a biblical perspective on this. God has revealed all to those who seek. It says in Hebrews that those who seek me got honors that. God, God draw near to those who seeks. No amount of intellectual assent or wisdom will make straight the crooked ways that we find ourselves walking. What this earth and all who dwell in it lack will not be accounted for by wisdom alone. There's vanity in wisdom. And all that is left for us to do is pull out our hair until we die, right? That's, that's Solomon's point. This is all going to be vanity. You're, you're going to hate this. It is an unhappy business, and then you're going to die. But God, right? What is impossible with man is possible with God. Christ comes and takes what is only vanity, and he makes it a joy. It is a joy that we have wisdom from the Lord, because now we can properly understand a perspective that we get to glorify God with all of these things under the sun that he's given us to do so. Throughout our study of Ecclesiastes, we must remember what Wes told us in the first week, right? He said, this should not be the only passage of scripture that you're studying for these next few months. Have your mind and your heart directed elsewhere as well. This is God's word, but it's, it's God's word in unison with the rest of God's word. So read elsewhere, otherwise you're going to be really sad for a long time. Wisdom in and of itself will lead us to a very disappointing vanity. So now the preacher turns from talking about wisdom, and then he applies wisdom in a different way to morality. So point two, vanity, immorality. Look with me at verse 17 here. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So this term, madness and folly, these are Old Testament words typically used in, in unison with one another that are paired together to signify a type of living 
or a type of decision-making that is in contrast and stands against God's law and commands. It is to signify a lifestyle that is not in harmony with what God has told his people to live. The preacher says here that he has resolved to know the wickedness and the sinfulness of the world as well as how to avoid it. He has has devoted himself to madness and folly, a foolish lifestyle that is void of hope. He's devoted himself to that as, as well. Just as much as he's applied himself to know wisdom, to know intellect, to know philosophy, to, to understand the, the way the world works, just as much as he's, he's devoted himself to there, he's also applied his heart to know madness and folly. He's also applied his heart to know if there is any hope, if there is any truth, if there is any worth in the vain things and the immorality that can be found in the world. He knows what good and evil truly are. He's tasted both. He has participated in both to his fill. He attacked the intellectual and the, and the wanderer in, in thought in the previous verses, and now here he attacks the moralist. He holds in one hand the lawless heathen who is only satisfied with his own flesh, and in the other hand, he holds the most put together, seemingly put together moralist who cares only what is right by their own standard. When he's talking about madness and folly, he's talking about these people. He's talking about law and right and wrong and good and evil and these, these themes that everyone wants to focus so much on. When he's talking about madness and folly and wisdom all within the same verse, he's holding them up in tandem to, to show you both of these, there's vanity in each. They're both pointless. You cannot live by wisdom alone. You cannot live by morals alone. The right and the wrong, the good and the evil, you can't live there. His message to us today, what, what does this mean? How does this apply to you, your, your life and my life here? Go ahead, live your life by whatever law you want to hold yourself or other people to. Go ahead, live your life, bind your conscience in whatever way that you think you can and see if it gives you hope. See if it holds you up. See, see if it saves you. Live your life and force and bind your conscience in whatever way makes you happy. And see if it gives you hope. See if it saves you from the vanity of your own unhappy life. This is the message of the preacher. He asks, is is personal morality the answer? If, If I can just be a certain way, if I can live by a set of rules, then I can straighten out the things in which God has made crooked. Martin Luther lived for nearly 20 years as a monk in a monastic society of... Of Augustinian monks. He, uh, in the late uh, 14 and early 1500s, he he, uh, disconnected himself from all worldly attachments and devoted himself wholly to moral monastic living. And he did everything that we think now you should do in order to be a spiritual person, right? He devoted himself in an endless fashion to prayers, to reading of the scripture, to denying worldly things, what does he say? He, he said that it was all spiritually bankrupt. He said, I, it, it helped me none. There was no benefit to him. What did help was the knowledge and the understanding that God saves sinners, that he wanted to save him. That is what helped him. Not any of these moralistic rules that he relied upon. And so the answer isn't personal morality. 
Okay, so is the answer to enforce our idea of morality onto others, both in and out of the church? As long as the church or the culture or the people that I surround ourselves have been to what I think morality is, then we can collectively make straight the ways in which God has made crooked. We can make up for what is lacking. We can account for that which is not there. No amount of legalistic rule, legalistic rule following will lead you to happiness and fulfillment. It'll leave you depressed, broken, and alone. No amount of, uh, no matter how much of what we are and we try and make ourselves and puff ourselves up to be will ultimately save us. Much of what we, we are going to see in the in this sermon series and what we're going to say, a lot of the claims that we're going to make from what we believe Solomon is saying here flies in the face of 21st century legalistic cultural Christianity. Especially within the last seven years of the church. We'll see in this passage, we'll see in this book that the things that God has given man to enjoy under the sun are, are just that, things to glorify and enjoy the Lord with. As Wesley said in the first week in his overview sermon, you will enjoy a glass of wine better as a result of learning about Ecclesiastes. You will enjoy a good steak better. Your food will taste better. Your relationships will feel better. You'll feel more affirmed and loved by your brothers and sisters of Christ because of what you're going to learn in Ecclesiastes. And what this, 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 this passage this morning is trying to communicate to us, it's not through intellectual assent. It's not through conforming to a worldview in your mind. And it's not through conforming to a law that God did not give you. It's not conforming to morals and moralistic standards that you think should be in place in the culture and in the, ch- the church. It's not conforming to those. It's by God. What God has actually said, that is the hope that we have here under the sun. And even if you do try and live your life, even by God's law, we, we see in books like Galatians that it's, it's, it's bankrupt. That no one, is a saved by, no one is saved by works of the law, but by grace. Even if you do try and live your life by God's law in your own power, you'll never be able to keep it, one. And two, you'll be miserable and alone forever because you can't have fellowship with anyone because they're all breaking the, the law that you're keeping perfectly. So if you think you know what is right and what is wrong, what good will it ultimately do you apart from God? What good will it do you? We see in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. The more you know about right and wrong, the more burdened you will become, because you realize not only is the world utterly just completely messed up, but also you're not living rightly either. You're going to be disappointed by your own law of morality. You're going to be disappointed by the law and the vanity that's found in wisdom, because no worldview is going to save you apart from the one found in Christ. We will never find lasting happiness, joy, meaning of life. We'll never get that major and we're never going to see it out to the end and cross that, that stage and get that diploma at the, end of the, at the end of our time on life, in life, the university that we find ourselves in. We're going to go through all of this. We're going to try things like wisdom and intellect. We're going to try things like morality, right and wrong. And there's only to be found vexation and sorrow there. Now, conclusions. So what do we do then, right? What now? What do we do? Do we just sit and stew in our unhappy misery and give up our searching? No. No. 
Because there's one, it does say in Hebrews that God honors those who seek him. If we seek after God, he will honor us. We have a savior who has entered into that vexation and vanity. He has immersed himself. He immersed himself in this world, taking on human flesh, being tempted and tried in every way that we were. People were trying to force worldviews on him. People were trying to force morality on him and a law that they made up in their own heart and they, and they devoted themselves to, to binding others to. He entered into that world and yet he remained perfect. He made sense of all that was vanity. He, made, he gave meaning to all that we can put our hands to here under the sun. This is the idea behind all of Ecclesiastes because God's nature, because of God's nature, we are not our own. All that we do in this life and all that we get to enjoy and love and, and participate in in this life is to his glory and it's for our benefit. God has promised a savior. Even in these passages, we, before Solomon's time, God had promised the Messiah would come and he would deliver who deliver his people, that the seed of the woman would rise up and would crush the head of the serpent. The preacher knew this. The savior, the seed of the woman is the only one who gives purpose to our intellectual endeavors. He's the only one who gives meaning to our morality. Jesus is the content and the cause of our joy. It is not intellectualism or morality or right and wrong that we enforce on ourselves or anyone else that will save us, but it is the hope of Jesus that we, that we can actually enjoy the things under the sun. And by no other name can all of this seem actually good to us and not just miserable and vanity. And when you have him, you're free. Those whom the sun sets free are free, and indeed it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Specifically, he's talking about in Galatians 5.1, Paul's talking about the law. Don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery to this law. You've been freed by Christ. Food and drink begin to taste better. Work begins to be more fulfilling. Learning becomes fun and not a burden. And our hearts begin to know what it means to enjoy the things that God has given us here on this earth. If you're here today and you hear this message and all you hear is the vanity, look to Christ. If all you can identify with is the foolishness and the pointlessness that's found here in this life for us to put our hands to, look to Christ. The cross is there to deliver us from this hopelessness. Let me invite you into something that will actually answer those questions that you have, that will actually give meaning and purpose and will actually begin to make straight that which God has made crooked. And will begin to account for that which is lacking in your life. Believe upon Christ. Trust in Christ. We're going to pray and we're going to continue to sing. Realize that our worth, truly like the song says, it's not in what we own, not what we put our hands to, not what we put our minds to. Our identity is found solely in the person of Christ. For he has made us a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, and a people of his own possession. Made to proclaim the, the ways in which he has delivered us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Wisdom, madness and folly, it's all vanity apart from knowing the true God in how he has revealed himself. Will you join me in prayer as we continue to sing here in just a moment? Father, we love you. We're so grateful that we don't have to walk through this life aimless, void of hope, void of meaning, 
striving after the wind, seeking to catch our own breath. And we have a rule, we have a savior, we have a, a, a good law of love that has been given to us. God, we just pray that you would make sense of all that you've said to us in our hearts, in this world. We pray that you teach us the vanity there is in wisdom. We pray that you would teach us the vanity that there is in morality. Would you also teach us the hope that we have in the gospel? God, we love you. We're just so grateful for what you've done. Would you continue to teach us through our study of Ecclesiastes to look to you, to look above the sun? All that is under the sun is vanity unless our eyes are above it. We love you and we're grateful. As we continue to sing, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, will you come? Would you make right and make straight that which is crooked? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you continue to stand and sing?